And if you allow a snake, you like you question everything, you become paranoid, you can't enjoy your life. Well, then you're in the vortex. Or if you can move through, realize like life is like the reality of this realm is whatever you internalize, you're going to prove to be true. And then it actually becomes true in your experience. Mm. Well, that's what I've seen with the gnome countryside, moving to Baltimore, the, uh, the, Masonic, the Masonic presentation. Like, that shit really happened. Nuts. How does that happen? Yeah, any updates on that since? Any uh, more invitations that. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. It's almost as if it never even happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I got a comic book in the mail from a, a past guest who's a comic, uh, or he's a tattoo artist, and he, he wrote his first comic book, uh, and it takes place in media Greece. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I could say for, we could say for certain, I went there, I gave a presentation, and I literally said, "You, uh, this was an initiation by life. And one week later, I'm living in fucking Baltimore. Wow. Like, my world turned upside down literally after that event. When I said, you know, or at least implied, by saying I'm being initiated by life, like, that means there's going to be a change. Yeah. And then the fucking, like, the world changed for me. That fucking really happened. <laughs> yeah. And it's been nuts. I mean, like, it's just been crazy out there. Well, and we are recording right now. I figured why let all this go to waste. We're here on your hand. I was, I was hoping we would be. Yeah. I can't get my Alex Jones rants without anyone witnessing besides ourselves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just wish I captured the whole thing. I didn't start recording until midway through. But you make a, a great point that... Alex Jones is uh, the Tom Brokaw of, or he's like a Tom Brokaw character. That's something you mentioned earlier that didn't make it into the recording. Um, he's kind of surpassed the level of, of credul credulity, right? Like he's incredulous by position. Like he, So I don't know if, if the comedy stuff can even damage him any more than he's already been uh, by just society's image of that role, you know, whoever fills it, you know, he just happens to be the the one, Bill so, Hicks so, or whoever so, he is. That, that's a really interesting sort of, of um, juxtaposition. So imagine, like, do you know who any, like, like serious newscasters are, like national news, like, who's on the news right now? I don't know. Like Lester Holt. Oh, there's you know the guy that's Papadopoulos. Uh, that guy, he's like Greek. He's like... Uh, George, oh, George Stephanopoulos. Steph I, I Stephanopoulos, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I did want to go back. There's no way Lester Holt's a real fucking human being. Like, he came out of nowhere. So. But anyway, so so George Stephanopoulos. Like, I remember when, when he was first introduced to uh, like, uh, like uh, a talking head who's supposed to be taken seriously. Like, that's... That's all. That's the magic of of particularly uh, like quote unquote serious news 
is that the person is presented on the news as someone whose opinion you should take seriously, like the entire like uh, uh, appeal to authority fallacy. Like this is in action where like I want to make this person appear as authoritative as possible, like an expert in the field. And that's the reason why the news works is because you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, that's fucking like that dude's legit. He wouldn't be on the news unless he was fucking legit because they wouldn't let like some, some like AI computer program like, you know, they, there's all of that sort of stuff. That's in the backdrop of like the, the mainstream non, non-questioning mind. And so um, imagine George Stephanopoulos, uh, someone who is presented as being very... Uh, needing to be presented and seen as very serious because the reason why they're serious is because they want people, the audience, to take what they say seriously. Imagine that dude going on the comedy circuit, getting drunk, and like kind of like making fun of his craft. <laughs> like it's a little bit different because you are right because like Alex Jones is like he he doesn't. Yes, he's mainstream by by um, reputation. He's known on a mainstream level. He's not like alt. He's not like you know only like the people in the know know about him. He's like the mainstream like symbol, the Lester Holt, the Tom Brokaw of of, um, of alternative news. But still, even with that, like I don't know, it just doesn't like it. It, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't add up. The mm. thing what adds up is the bill. <laughs> you know, like at least the Bill Hicks thing comes into becomes more probable in my mind. I take that more seriously. The whole thing's a fucking joke. The whole thing's a fucking joke. Well, and and to be totally elucidating our audience here, uh, we got on this because I'm supposed to be interviewing Rob Dew, uh, Infowar senior producer, and he was a no show. But of course. My buddy Michael Wands got my back, and uh, and yeah, I mentioned that Alex Jones has been on these comedy shows. One that I'm a fan of, and and used to be in Los Angeles. Now it's in Austin, Texas. Um, but yeah, Kill Tony. It's a very funny show. I've actually seen it live twice. And uh, but yeah, why is it called Kill Tony? Well, Tony is the host, and comedy verbiage and slang is like when you do really well you kill right you're oh gotcha. i killed gotcha. last gotcha. night so the idea is you want to impress tony he's the you know he's sort of like the uh master of ceremonies you know like he he puts on the show hosts it the he, they got their producer there brian redband who was the original producer of the joe rogan podcast until jamie replaced him so it's, you know, it's got heat and, and Joe Rogan always talks about it. He's been on it a, a few times. So it's a, it's a big show. It's very popular, especially now that they're in Texas. But, uh, but yeah, I, I went to it twice and, and it was a blast. I mean, the, the randomness of the show is what makes it so exciting because it i mean literally especially when they're in la i mean there's so many people that would sign up to be on this show so they're pulling you know 100 out of 100 names you know only five or six people have they have time to bring up only five or six people so you know you'd run into some really strange characters that were not funny at all but because they were strange it was funny and you know that kind of thing and 
I loved it. I mean, I still do. Texas is just a different group of people than LA, so it's a little different. But yeah, it's it's still a great show. Well, it sounds like the so I'm, I'm talking out of two sides right now. So I've got the side where I'm find out where I'm like questioning the entire overall media industry. Media being like something in the middle, which gives people information. The reason why that is deserving of being questioned is because whatever information a human being internalizes, aka accepts to be true, and then that becomes part of their way of navigating reality. It becomes their reality. That's just the way the way it works. And so because of that, uh, every single everything should be at least questioned or at least looked at with um, a critical eye. Not necessarily like to an extreme. Hold on for one second. What we got going on right here? What's up, brother? How are we doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm just getting in. Yeah, I went down to see a friend of mine who was uh, performing in Lancaster, a little bluegrass band, and I'm coming back in. I'm recording the show right now. You're actually on this. Yeah. All right. I'll see ya. All right. I'm back. Hello? Who's that? Uh, that is Luke. That's Mr. Rich's oldest son. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right on. And I'm driving back into Gnome Countryside as he was leaving. And I was like, it was literally, it was literally like he was in a pickup truck and I'm in a pickup truck and we're on a dirt road and we're like, we're like next to each other with our windows rolled down, like just having like <laughs> less than a foot away. Like, yeah, like that's what happened. Like I've seen that in a movie and now that is my life. <laughs> I'm coming from the farm fair this weekend. It's the funniest friggin' thing. Um, but, uh, what I really wanted to go with with the point before, though, um, and I, f- I forget where I left off, but was looking at the Andy Kaufman story as a model or a modus operandi to understand comedy um, and um, and the comedy industry. Okay, because that's what we're describing and. and and I'm, I'm, how familiar, I know we've talked about this before, of how familiar are you when I say the, the, the phrase like the Andy Kaufman story? Does that mean anything to you? Do you have any context? Yeah, I've seen his documentary. I mean, I was way past his time, but, uh, but yeah, I saw the documentary and it's weird, you know, watching the, you know, comedy evolve from my point of view, a lot of the stuff that he was doing uh, was still funny despite the fact that most of the like comedy at that time, you know, I wouldn't really find that funny. But there's something like prankster about him that was just very funny uh, that I appreciated, even though there was that like gap in context that kind of separates old comedy from new comedy. Um, but yeah, I I know Andy Kaufman, the so moon, would- the moon documentary, something like that, man, man. Man on the Moon. So they, they, it was a fictional uh, telling of, of his story, um, The Man on the Moon, and Jim Carrey played him. Mm-hmm. So Andy Kaufman is, like, like he, he, take away his comedy. Like, develop the ability to separate yourself from 
from from the actual narrative of like, you know, this is what he did. This was the joke. It was funny. There was vodka and there was like the rest of it. And focus upon the modus operandi, how and what they did. Like what it, it, it was, um, in my opinion, and, and this is the basis of the understanding of the Bill Hicks and the Alex Jones sort of um, topic, which we had, is that's what the whole Andy Kaufman thing was. Like there were two characters and they were in on it. And you never knew who was what. And you never knew what was real and what was what was part of the gag. And and the joke is on the audience and not, you know, it's not a joke for the audience. It's a joke on the audience. Like it's very, very like um, Michael Hoffman sort of uh, Masonic, Masonic macabre comedy sort of, uh, narrative, but literally expressed. And when you look at what, what Andy Kaufman did, so there was Andy Kaufman, there was this other character who was known as, I can't think of his name. If you're in front of a computer, you could probably find it out pretty quickly. It was Tony, Tony something or other. And it was his, it was supposedly played by his manager, but then sometimes Andy Kaufman himself played it. And like, Tony Clifton. That's why I, I was like, what do you mean, kill Tony? Ah, uh, okay. All right. All because, right. like, when you're beginning, so, so when you look at comedy from, like, if you can think of, like, the comedy industry, because you're thinking of the comedy, comedy industry, and I'm making this, I'm making this assumption based upon what I hear from you, is, like, you're like, I know the comedy industry. It's like, you know, I'm one degree of separation from it. You know, I'm, I, I know Sam, who's a big name and I've been to the shows and I know the people behind the scenes. I know how it works. And I'm suggesting like, no, I think comedy is fucking much, 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 much deeper. And then, then all of that, like I'm talking like fire club roast sort of thing in terms of, of the, the, the dark macabre elements of comedy being at the foundation of mainstream entertainment, AKA Hollywood as part of like the, the programming and what they're programming. That's another con that that's a different conversation, but it like how they're programming is what I'm focused upon. And part of it, like we understand it and we can see some of their, their, their clowns, their, their jesters is when they do this, like, what character is what in the same way that Tony in the same way that, that Alex Jones and Bill Hicks maybe are interchangeable is how Tony Clifton and, um, and, uh, uh, Andy Kaufman, you know, Andy Kaufman, Alex Jones, AKA J, uh, you know, the, the, the way that, that, that we see this being played out and what it's saying. Like, I think, I think there's, there, there's something rather, rather significant worthy of like investigating further no doubt yeah i i agree i think comedy is a great um it's a it's an interesting petri dish that collects all kinds of different um aspects of culture you know like certain- I, i'm sa- i'm not saying i'm saying this i'm saying that you know you can understand how the, the the news industry is very very is very very influential in shaping the collective narrative consciousness. Like, if it wasn't for the news, no one would have ever heard of COVID, right? Right. 
Like the news does that. Like we can say the news is one of the reasons of the news, however you want to define the news, is that it tells people what's going on in the world so they know what to think. And so because of that, because we understand how, how so much of this, is, uh, how much of, of consciousness, collective consciousness is shaped, we know the industry of the news is a major tool of shaping, of shaping consciousness. I'm saying comedy is an industry. Like I'm not describing what comedy is. I'm saying the industry of comedy is the same thing as like the industry of the news, which is different than just news in general, relaying information. Comedy industry being different than just being like, these are things which like maybe make us think or laugh. I'm saying the comedy industry, which is put through the mainstream media, is as influential in shaping collective consciousness as the news is. But the news is obvious because you're telling us stories and the, and the comedy works much, much deeper in terms of like psychological um, uh, uh, programming. So like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to kind of go and stress. And if that's the case, like that's kind of like my hypothesis, man, I'm totally wrong. You know? But if that's my hypothesis, I'm going to suggest a character like Alex Jones in the same way, like Andy Kaufman are like, these are like maestros. These are like the, if, if you know, like stage magicians, there's a guy, guy, what's his name? What's his name? Ray, Ray James, Ray James. He's like a, He's a stage magician and he's maybe not a stage magician. The typical person on the street is going to know his name, but within the realm of stage magicians, everyone's like, yeah, this is the guy who really knows what's going on. Same thing is going on with, with comedy. And I would say that's, that's the case which we see with these guys in terms of shaping consciousness. Okay. And it's, and, and it's not the shaping of consciousness. We think it is because it's much more macabre. It's much more like, subtle and it's much more like Bob Saget sort of shit. Huh. And what I mean by Bob Saget sort of shit is on one hand, the raunchiest comic in the world is the guy who hosts America's funniest videos, home videos, and is the dad on on um Full House. That show? On Full House. Those are the two most mainstream at the time, mainstream pieces of programming and the people who hired Bob Saget did it as a fucking joke because they're laughing at mainstream America because this is the raunchiest motherfucker who's out there. Like it's a joke. Like anyone could have done those jobs, those gigs, but Bob Saget did it because Bob Saget is not what all of these people think it is. That's what I mean by like, when you begin to see this Andy Kaufman, this, this double, this double, uh, two faced Gemini Janus sort of like way of, of being of, of, of comedy. We're seeing that right. That's what I'm kind of describing. Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't uh, disagree with that. I think your your hypothesis is uh, has got some uh, some some heat to it. It's worthy of looking at. Like I'd say it that way. That's how I would say it if I was going to describe it. Because hmm. we're playing with ideas. I mean, that's all we're doing. If you're doing like a like a pot like this sort of show, it's like you know we got to take that into consideration as well. It's like you know these are ideas. We're playing with ideas, and so we take them seriously so that we can expand upon our, 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 maybe our perspectives or like our awareness, but then we don't take them like too serious because they're just freaking ideas. I can't prove any of it. Right. 
How- but ideas are what make our reality. That's the thing, which is paradoxical is like what you think will literally become, uh, one way or the other, how you experience life. How often have you gone to, uh, or how, how many times have you gone to see a comedy show ever? I have not been to a comedy show since I have last one I've been to was when I was in living in DC. And I think I moved from DC in 2005. Okay. At the time I went to, I went to quite a few comedy shows. I love going to comedy shows. I love stand up comedy. I have so like just the, the art for it. Like I love all of that sort of stuff. Like, I mean, when you begin to realize the role, I mean, this goes back to like in the, you know, they tell us in the, in the, in the, in the Greek times and the Greek theater, um, you had to go to see the theater. Like you had to go and see the plays and it's because they understood then that when someone would go and see the the theater and, and the people in the costumes and, and doing the plays that, it affects the consciousness of, of the, of the group. That's why it was a requirement that you would go and see that. And that truth of, of performance, um, is, is still, is still, you know, it's still valid. And so that being said to me, there is nothing more courageous, uh, on a social sort of way than a human being who goes up on a stage and and is trying to make a group of strangers laugh. Mm. Like that is that and so like from that I love to watch the art form just from that. And that's part of like like the the Andy Kaufman thing is like his his whole comedy approach was completely different. He's mm. like, I'm not trying to make you laugh. I'm making fun of you. Right, and then maybe some of you will realize I'm making fun of you, and then you're gonna laugh. Well, it was but so- that's that's the modus operandi when you begin to see things that way, and you see that it's always been that way. Well, then you can begin to like get a little bit deeper in terms of like what is actually happening with comedy. Like, why is that important, and what are these comedians about? Like, you know, I once I, I did a presentation, maybe like. I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I was talking about the Seinfeld show. And I was saying, like, I, I don't know if you, you probably don't recall this, but when Seinfeld beat was contemporary, when it was like on, on TV and it was like the biggest thing on TV, uh, like everyone would always talk about, like, it's a show about nothing. Like that would be the critique. And I, I remember always at the time, like, I'm like not even understanding why that was a critique, but I've thought about that since. Um, when they say it's a show, the importance of, putting that narrative into everyone's mind, the, the, the public's mind that Seinfeld's a show about nothing is that, you know, it's a clue. And what's the clue about? It's like, it's telling you what it's a show about. Um, it's the structure of a dream. That's what a Seinfeld episode is. That's what a show about nothing is. Your dream just begins. If you can recall a dream, like there's no like introduction, there's no like, you know, like build up, lead up. It's just like you're in a scene and then the scene's over. Like what the fuck just happened? Like that's what a Seinfeld episode was. And I'm going to go and suggest is that the reason why it was done that way is because it was set up as a resonance to the dreamlike structure. So it would feel familiar to consciousness as the dream state. And so because of that, it allows, you know, different sort of ideas to be embedded deeper into consciousness on the same level of consciousness in which the dream state exists. 
So the reason why I'm bringing this up is like, that's just one more example. Like the Seinfeld TV show, Jerry Seinfeld was, was, was recognized as, you know, quote unquote, uh, comedy God. You know, we know that because they gave him all that money, uh, for his syndication rights, but the real God is probably Larry David. Uh, but nonetheless, like, you know, these are the, these are the ways which so much of the way, which our understanding of reality, the way which people interpreted and internalized, um, uh, the ridiculousness of COVID, all that sort of stuff. Like this is where, where that logical foundation in, in a, in mental analysis of the group mind, where it begins to take place. Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> a little flabbergasted because I'm, I'm just such a fan of comedy that as well, that I'm just like, I'm just visualizing a lot of what you're saying, get, kind of getting lost in it. But yeah, I've, I've so, so, so that, so that, so you just nailed something else. So it's like getting lost in it. Like there's nothing wrong with it. Like, and, and that would even be when I talk about the James Shelby downer vortex, that means getting lost in it. Like, like we're, we're born in these cultures where the stuff is good. It's interesting. We like to be part of it. It's funny. I want to, uh, and so we get lost in that. And then when we can step back out of it and be like, wow, what the hell was I even participating in? Like it's impact is much greater than I ever knew. I mean, I would imagine there's so many people like, let's say in the Hollywood industry, like behind the scenes, like set makers or something like that, who all went to art school and they're like, Oh, you know, I got into the business and I love it and blah, blah, blah. And then one day I woke up and I realized, Holy shit, I was part of something. I, I didn't even realize what I was building. Well, I have, I think I've watched every episode of Seinfeld on one of my in my younger years and yeah i definitely remember thinking uh not that it was a show about nothing but the the way the show was structured was interesting like it was very uh seamless like a dream yeah like it's like the the transitions didn't even like from episode to episode didn't really matter there are a couple themes that that spread out over like the the lifetime of the of the show or at least a couple seasons. Like what's popping to mind is like George working for the New York Yankees. Um, but then for the most part, like eat, like, and that's the, the shows were, were like really, 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 um, soft in terms of, of plot arc. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember Kramer bar- bursting through the door a lot. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, and, and we don't, we look at the archetypes of, of the different characters of Seinfeld. So let me ask you what, what episode comes most easily to your mind when you remember an episode? What episode comes to my mind? Yeah. Um, like don't overthink it. Like what, what, what comes into your mind? Which one, what are, are you thinking? I'm thinking of the mailman episode when they have to deal with the mailman. Refresh my memory on that one. They end up in the I'm mail. They end up in the mail room at some point. That's all I remember. But no, I'm not. It, it's not fresh enough on my mind. Well, we're pointing at Newman right there, right? Yeah, the new Newman man. is who I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So you're thinking of the character Newman, but I do think there, there, there was there an was episode where they go to his job, like they were at his work. 
for some reason. I, I, I vaguely recall that as well. I can't, I can't, I mean, like you, I've probably seen every episode. Uh, I can't remember that specific one, but Newman is interesting. Like when you start to think about like, you know, him is the uh, antithesis of Jerry. Well, yeah, Jerry's like calm, cool, and, you know, kind of goofy, and this guy's like all uptight and what's going on and scheming and worried about... They were always at each other's throat. Yeah. That's why I was saying they're the the antithesis. They were always like, they were oppositional that way. Yeah. And so... So like just looking at those characters and the different storylines and the, the, the ideas which which that show put into like it's it's modus operandi. It's um the way the show is set up, that's what I mean by it's modus operandi. Um like that is that's that's the the um the means for then delivering a message. And so that's true for everything. Like every, every piece of media, it has a modus operandi, like how it delivers it, like whether it's music or whether it's a TV show or whether it's a movie. And then within each one of those, like it can be broken down like a thousand different ways. Like there's infinite ways of delivering information. And what the information is, is like what goes into the viewer's mind and then it frames their inner world. And so what that means when it frames their inner world is that when they see outside reality, it's interpreted in such a way. Like that's predictive programming. Like let me go and give you like a storyline so that when you see it in actual reality, you know how to interpret it. Hmm. And then, so, so when you, you can begin to look at media that way, if you can begin to realize that everything is a different form of, or has a different, texture of its ability to deliver its payload. Its payload is the programming. Um, well then you can go and see like, you know, you, you can have a, a better understanding of where it hits in consciousness. That's the whole thing with, with Seinfeld. Like it hits on the level of consciousness of the dream world. Why? Because it is structured like a dream so that when it's received that way, like it, it fits that way. Like sometimes like when they describe, um, how uh, like uh, cannabinoid molecules line up perfectly or fit in perfectly like lock and key with like certain uh, brain molecules or, or whatever hormonal molecules within, within our endocrine system. Like they say, it's like a perfect match. So it's well received. Well, you could do the same thing with how you deliver, how you deliver um, messages. And so, by structuring something like a dream, it lock and key is received within your consciousness on the dream level, which is really, really, you know, whatever you want to think the dream level is to like what your consciousness is like, that's how that, that's where that's being delivered. Hmm. And then you look at the episodes and you look at like the themes and you look at the characters and you look at the archetypes and then you know what's being delivered. And so the point of all of this is like, this goes back to comedy this is why like comedy is why I say like, so is like as, as significant of an industry of shaping consciousness as the news is because, you know, like Seinfeld's the best example. Like it goes to that deep level and like, that's the Andy Kaufman stuff, like the, like the joking, like the, the, the mockery of the audience, like that's a deep level too. Like, 
realistically, if you want to go and think about that in terms of a programming, like a mocking way of delivering information is developing or reinforcing uh, a shame response. If you're being mocked, you're going to feel shameful, right? Like everyone's like pointing at you and laughing at you and like, you know, you're going to get embarrassed. You're going to be like, oh, you know, you're going to want to go and run away unless you're like, have, you know, that, that in a way, you know, if you want to go into metaphor, like to me at least, that's always been what that whole like Jesus story is of, of, you know, I was not raised in a, in a Christian ca- uh, household, but I'm familiar with the story and maybe I can look at it a little bit less emotionally tied because I wasn't raised in a Christian household is like when Jesus is like, uh, you know, I, what is it? The stations of the cross when he's, when he's like walking down before he's being crucified and all the, and everyone's like yelling at him and like throwing stuff at him. But he like is able to handle himself in a way like, you know, uh, they don't know, you know, father, forgive them, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, you know, he's able to recognize their own ignorance. Like someone can walk through a mocking situation like that. Like they don't know any better. And like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a higher truth to that. But if you're not at that level, well, then you're just going to feel shameful when you're being mocked. And this is all happening on a subconscious level, you know, and that's going to be the majority of the viewers. It's a shame ritual. Hmm. Well, there was a sort of like, uh, you know, butt of the joke aspect to Kaufman, you know, not that wouldn't, you know, the subtlety of it that he was making fun of society or the audience was you know, sort of diffused by him being so absurd that people who weren't clued in would just think like, oh, he's he's the butt of the joke. He's crazy. Let's laugh at that, you know. That's that that's exactly it. That's but it's exactly subtle. It's like but but the truth is still making its way into that person's conscious field, whether they react to it or not. Um, and I, and I would say the person who you described, who's like laughing, like who's laughing at the imbecile who's up on stage, like, Oh my God, this guy's horrible. Or like, can you believe that? They don't realize that that's the act. And so they're like, they're, they're living in the fantasy. There's like, you know, when they talk about like 4d or 5d chess, like there's an example of it. Because the person who's watching it, who's thinking that they're laughing at the person, like it's really something deeper than that. Like that's that's the level of you know of gaslighting. <laughs> you know that's what gaslighting is to a certain level, right? You know that's the big frame nowadays. And so it's 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 we can see that sort of like that that subtlety of not realizing what's actually happening. Yeah. Well. I did stand up comedy one time and it sort of was like a dream <laughs> a little little bit of, of a nightmare in a way too but it was fun it was like what happened well it was so fast that i you know like that experience of like uh time flies when you're having fun but not so much like that it was because it was fun but more because the pressure and anxiety of like oh god i'm standing in the stage right now um, so yeah, I, I had, I had five minutes, um, but I only How had, you? this was right before the COVID pandemic. So this was like two years ago. Um, All right. 
So I was. Did you have like a routine? No, I I'd done it. I just wanted to try it for the first time. So I saw that this open mic was happening at this bar that I had gone to a bunch because I worked in in New Haven and I would go there after my shift at night. And I noticed there was the open mic, so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go on uh, the open mic next month, you know. And I watched the one that month, and and next month I I went up and. I had like, you know, taken notes all month because I was a delivery driver at that point, but I also did shifts at uh, at this cafe in New Haven. So I would just sort of jot down my thoughts on, you know, what was funny. And, uh, and yeah, I got a few laughs, but I was so like anxious about it that I didn't spend more than a minute on stage. I, <laughs> I was like, the host was like, all right, you know, Next up is this guy, and I came up and said what I said, and and then you know, the host went back up. He was like, "That's quick." Off? What's that? Did you just walk off after a minute? Oh yeah! Once I finished telling my jokes, I was like, "All right, I'm done," <laughs> and just walked off. <laughs> had you had you rehearsed what you were gonna say, or did you just think about it in your mind? Like how much, how prepar- how prepared were you? I just did it. I didn't, I didn't rehearse at all. I really just, like I said, I took notes, uh, throughout the month of what I thought I thought was funny. And, and yeah, it's all in my head. I just remembered, you know, I I didn't want to be the, the guy reading from a notepad or, or a phone, but I noticed most of the people that were there did that. So maybe I should have tried that, but yeah, no, I, uh, I had more stuff I could have said, I'm sure, but um, yeah, that was it. That was my attempt, and then a few months later, uh, the whole world shut down, and and then I started podcasting. So, uh, I would say that was your initiation. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, so I'm gonna I'll go down. I'm gonna go down a little bit of a of a um, of a of a. Um, a storyline or a thought process. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, um, rites of passage, right? You know what I mean by rites of passage? Yeah. So that's been a long tradition of the human experience. And, and I'm going to focus primarily on, on men because I think that's what I can speak about. And so typically with, with a, with the rites of passage of a boy into a man, regardless of like whatever the culture would be, it, it has to do with, with like facing a, a fear. And then regardless of like how, and it's going to vary depending upon like, you know, culture and right. But it's not so much about like doing it correctly as much as it is about doing the process, like going through it. And what happens is, or like ideally what should happen is the, the young man is faced with something that had been a psychological fear. All fears are like a psychological thing. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's the, the, the pre-thought of like what could happen. Like, you know, that's what fear is. Um, it's not like actually happening. It's like thinking about like what could happen. So it's like, that's what I mean by psychological. And 
it is the facing of something like that and then coming through that. And what that does is when that goes into the nervous system, when that goes into the nervous system of uh, like a young man, like, like it, it becomes real. Like they've actually, they, you know what you're made of. Or at least you know that you can you can handle a situation, and prior to prior to something like that, maybe you'll have that experience in life when you're growing up, or maybe you don't. But when you have a culture where every young man goes through that, you know, to like a certain baseline level that that every young man realizes, like he's experienced, like pushing through something which has challenged and feared and scared him and he um, made it through. He persevered. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal because when you step into like reality, like you need to know what you're made of and you'll, you could go and look at so many of the different types of training programs, which are out there. They, they basically follow that same sort of model of pushing someone. So they know what they're capable of so that when they go out in the regular world, like they know, like it's, it's a, it's a real thing. They can face it without, with at least a lesser degree of, of, of psychological fear. So, okay. So that was just the preface. Um, within the comedy industry, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tiptoe around this. And the reason I'm tip, well, I shouldn't have to, I guess. So, <laughs> Excuse me, because we live in a culture where we got to tiptoe around uh, sensitive things, and so this is one of the most one of the most sensitive topics in our culture. It has been for a while, and I have a little bit of a past because I can say that um, my mother is a Jew, so I can talk about Jews, and so the the comedy industry is primarily like much of Hollywood is rule is controlled by Jews or people. And what I mean by that specifically in this instance is not so much like a, like a Kabbalistic black magic sort of behind the scenes way that maybe that's, that's in, in play. And I don't mean like a, like a certain type of, of ethnicity. I mean it mostly as a culture, like they've gone through the same sort of culture and within the culture, particularly the American Jew, is you go through the bar a bar mitzvah, you know you know what a bar mitzvah is, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a rite of passage. It is a rite of passage. It's for a thirteen-year-old boy to become a man, and what he has to do is he has to go in front of his entire congregation, and he's got to read from the Torah, and he's got to chant, and then he's got to give an interpretation of what he's read. Okay. Yeah, I've heard I've heard of this. I've well, never been true. to one. I've never been invited to one. That, that's what it is. Like I'm telling you, that's what the experience is. So imagine that being 13 years old, right? And like you're like, oh yeah, you're gonna have to go and you have to do this. You have to do this in in front of everyone. Like, how do you think you're gonna feel? <laughs> nervous. You're gonna be nervous. You're gonna be nervous, and then you're gonna go through it and think about the skill set which you're gonna learn. Oh yeah. At 13 too. I mean, that's a good, you're going to learn what it feels like to be the center of attention and have to have everyone looking at you and doing stuff like that, like talking and then analyzing and giving your opinion. Now compare that to a rite of passage where like you got to fight a tiger. (laughs) 
Okay. If you got to fight a tiger, think about the skill set you're going to learn. Think about the mental psychological skill set. You're going to learn something as it relates to those sort of things. Like, you know, maybe like fighting or like self-defense or like facing like physical or mortal danger versus like, um, so, uh, a bar mitzvah, which your danger is just purely social acceptance. Okay. Like, do you see how those are like, like they're both rites of passages and they both, they both, uh, put us, uh, an ability within the young man, a different ability. Mm. Oh, I know this well. So, so we go and see that. So now this goes into like my whole point with comedy and like what you said as a rite of passage, I said, comedy is a primary art. The, the, the calmest comedy industry as from the beginning, you know, going back to vaudeville, you know, uh, has been a, a, a Jewish enterprise and the Jewish culture, their rite of passage in America has to do with exactly what being a stand-up comedian is. Like, think about like what you went through, like to, to muster up the courage to go up in front of a, a bunch of, of, of strangers and try to move them. That's what making someone laugh is. And like, you know, and dealing with that, that's like, you know, that's a, that's a, that, that, that's a high wire act. And so when I say that was a, when I say like you went through an initiation, like that's more or less what the bar mitzvah is, you know, it's mm-hmm. very specific, like, you know, like maybe to, to like, like one of the things also I would imagine, I, I you know, I'm not a stand up comedian. I'm not like in that industry, but I, I'm, 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 I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware enough of the human experience so I can pay enough attention. I can make, I think some pretty logical conclusions, but like, you know, part of, part of like make, making your way of earning your keep in that industry is like, you got to go through, you got to go through some embarrassing moments. You got to know oh what it's like. Going, right? like I, that's a right of, that's part of the rite of passage. Can I, and like, the people who haven't done that, like they're not looked at on the same level. Now I'm remembering more of that night. <laughs> so there is, um, there's this thing that I heard from listening to all these different comedy podcasts and just learning about comedy that like, Oh, well good, good, easy, like way to start is with like, you know, talking about uh you know yourself right like get, go up and talk about yourself like make fun of yourself that's a good way to get into comedy because it'll sort of you know make it easier to uh you know branch out from you, there you gain the sympathy of the audience when you make fun of yourself that's one of the reasons why you do that so my whole thing was like well i'll probably be the tallest guy there so i'll make a joke about how tall i am the guy who went on two people before me, it was a guy who was probably like three inches taller than me. So you know how tall I am, Mike. I mean, this guy dwarfed so me. Your, or, so there's your joke. <laughs> yeah, well. So, so the joke would be to go on stage and tell people, like, that's what you're planning on doing. And then this guy comes in and, like, he steals your thunder. Oh, my gosh. So, like, so, so that would be the vulnerability. 
So like, uh, I was, that's why you talk about yourself. If you go, if you went and you told that as like, you know, if you were able to do that on stage, like suddenly, like, like everyone knows that's real. Like they're like, well, holy shit, that just happened. Like, you know, and then that's like how it goes. And like, you gain people's like, uh, they'll begin to like you. Like that's not assuming like, you know, there are other things which are likable about your presentation. So that's like level one truth that people would go and see that level two manipulation is that you go and you do that, but you and that guy were like on the same plan. And like, of course he was going to go to before you. And then that was going to be your joke because you knew it was going to open people up to, uh, liking you more. That's like the Andy Kaufman shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I had that, uh, foresight, but yeah, no, I, I think I made a comment about my height despite it being, uh, sort of yeah not really i don't know i don't think anyone noticed or cared but yeah it was it was interesting it's also a, a campus you know sort of on campus uh bar too so there, it was sort of like a a particular crowd uh so i kind of that kind of got in my head like oh well you know i'm not really uh politically aligned with these people so i'm gonna i'm gonna shake it up a little bit this was pre-covid so it was less dangerous to <laughs> go and be a little rebellious like that and that's that's also i think i tried to make like a few conspiracy comments but yeah anyways that was my that was my one experience with it and it was uh yeah it was it was like a rite of passage i mean i was confirmed in the catholic church that was a rite of passage but nowhere what did you have to do that was special that was, I mean, my whole experience with the Catholic Church was super sterile, you know, like it, it didn't really but, feel. But the, the confirmation process is not a, like a, a particularly personal experience, right? No, it, it's very, yeah, it's very. Like it's, it's communal, like everyone in your confirmation class goes through it at once. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a song and dance kind of thing. Like everybody shows up with their family member of choice and then that family member walks with you, you know, and you sort of do your thing. So then then we know that this is a, uh, what would we call a dead rite of passage. Yeah. It was very mute. No charge. There's no charge. You're not fucking, you're not staying up at night, like worried, like, holy shit. Compared to, compared to the, go and do your Haftorah in front of the congregation. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought of as you're describing that. But then also, as you mentioned the tiger thing, you know, Amos, when I met him, he told me about the eagle bone ceremony, uh, rite of passage. I forget the proper term for it, but you know, you, you do sweat lodge for three days and then they leave you out in the, in the barren, you know, sort of flatlands exactly exactly and but you as he was it. telling me this you know it was a, like a rite of passage like the story of you know him i don't think he went through it personally i think he just relayed what it was like but yeah he told me he's like yeah that you know well, as he was telling me i i felt like my hairs on the back of my neck stand up and my spine tingling like it was it was a rite of passage, just learning about the rite of passage. So, 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 okay. So, so this is a great, so think about it as in terms of a continuum and thinking about like the more, the more potent the rite of passage, the more potent it is, the bigger the impact would be when you come through it. Mm. Okay. 
But then at the same time, by being more potent, the greater the, the likelihood of you die. <laughs> right? Yeah. It goes hand in hand. So like, that's the dance. Like, like that doesn't mean like you're going to die, but it means like there's a, there's a, there's a more like, there's a greater likelihood that if you're going to die, you're going to die at a, at your, your Eagle bone ceremony than you are your bar mitzvah. Like maybe you're going to choke on your fucking matzo ball soup afterwards, but that's about <laughs> as much danger you have. And that's a whole lot more dangerous than, or at least, or maybe having a heart attack out of like anxiety beforehand. And that's more dangerous than like, than, than like uh, going through your confirmation class. And so then go and look at what it does in terms of um, like the, the, the bravado to life of like what the typical adult, what the adult within that culture brings. So like there's a direct correlation between like the more extreme, the more your rites of passages are that are going to challenge the young men that when they are adults, like they are like the, their, their ability of, of courageousness of, of, of being able to, to face like fearful things of, of maybe also being wiser and being more compassionate because they, maybe some people do die going through that. Who knows? But like, as that, the, the, the more extreme these rites of passages are, the, 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 at least the, the more, I'm going to use, I keep going to the word courageous. Like, and, I'll, and by courageous, I mean like willing to do something that, 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 that would scare you, you know, like courageous doesn't mean you're without fear. It just means if you do something despite fear, like the more courageous, the less fear holds upon the person. So we go and we see on one level, which is like total, like life and death survival. And that would be the extreme, like maybe uh, what you're describing or further along in the, in the continuum versus like, I'm really comfortable going within like is a social rite of passage. And all it has to do with is being like um, uh, being able to handle uh, ridicule or the potential of ridicule from your peers. And so like, that's a little bit less, you know, you're not, that's not the same level of courageousness and the courageousness is going to be applied within the realm in which it showcases itself. So it's going to be more social and this is going to be maybe more physical and more tangible. And so we can begin to uh, really understand uh, I mean, you, you define a culture by the rites of passages and lack of rites of passages. I mean, we do have them here in our culture, but they're subtle and they're weak and they're, 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 they're impotent. They, they don't have potency. Um, you know, that also defines the, the culture itself and then their ability of, for that culture to, to really, you know, stand up for itself. Yeah, no, it's it's been defused, you know, a lot of those extracurricular activities that they used to have in school that provided that kind of uh, out, you know, uh, what's the right word for it, uh, outlet of energy, you know, it's not there anymore for the most part. I mean, certain sports have that aspect, you know, but there, there's a, also the commercial aspect to sports now that kind of takes away the corporate sponsorship you know it's all about money and definitely and 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 you know you'd also go and look at like even 10 years ago or 20 years ago or uh, when 
when there was more of the rite of passage within youth and amateur sports programs, which undoubtedly you're right. They are in a way rites of passages. They're, they're still watered down versions to prepare someone to go and fit into culture. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean by rites of passage, rites of passage, the quality and the, but the culture is like anyway, because it is what is defining maybe the, the limits of what that adult population is willing to do or stand up against. Mm. Right. That's why you keep a population weak if you want to control it. Mm. Well, yeah, it seems like that's where we're going. I mean, comedy to bring that up used to be a way for people to, you know, be able to talk about things that, maybe they weren't comfortable bringing up themselves and laugh about it, you know, and, and now there's such a, uh, hypersensitivity around things that could be considered offensive that we can't even talk about certain subjects that need to be discussed, you know, like race, gender, and all these other controversial topics that, you know, for the same reason, I tend to avoid them on my show, not when they come up, but as like topics for guests and whatnot, you know, if, if that's what somebody's plan is to talk about, I'd rather book them to talk to Sam than take the conversation on myself. You know, I'll, I'll listen to Sam talk about it with them and enjoy it. But you know, it's just, it's more his wheelhouse than me, right. As a, as, as a podcaster that also works for a bigger podcast, that's one of the, the neat things that I, I've been able to do is like if somebody hits me up to be like, Oh yeah, I want to be on your show. Sometimes I'm like, well, you're not really up my alley, but I'll book you on Sam's show. And they're usually pretty stoked because they're like, Whoa, I didn't even know you worked for that guy. That's great. This show's even bigger than yours. Thank you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, uh, it is. It is weird though. You know, like this, this is the, it used to be like, uh, you know, taboo to discuss this stuff outside of, um, you know, like, like family. Like, I don't know how your family is with this kind of stuff, but like my family has like a, uh, pretty raunchy sense of humor. At least they used to. And it's sort of muted itself over the past five years because that's how the culture is. And they're very much like, with what's going on in the world and you know like our grandfather is like <laughs> he was from the from a different time you know so his raunchy sense of raunchy humor can you give me an example of your grandfather's raunchy humor like what would something you joke about sex flatulence race <laughs> drunkenness i mean the those were general topics he's he was more uh nuanced about it but oh he loved i mean nuanced with, within those topics well his nickname was frenchy so you know growing up in a small canadian town there weren't as many like types of people in his world so when he moved to connecticut and met all these types of people it was like it's like a really incredible thing you know for him at least and and yeah i think he 
he loved it, but he also had that sense of humor of like, oh, black people do this. Uh, Chinese people sound like this, you know, <laughs> like stuff that, you know, we can't even, I mean, I feel like, oh, I'm going to offend people just saying that. Uh, but I, I like it. I think it's funny. I don't get offended, but that's, that's the white, that's the white patriarchy, right? I'm entitled because of, uh, culture to, and, uh, you know, but that's, you know what I'm saying. It's like, it's, it's, it'd be funny to see if my Pepe was still alive, you know, if, if people would, um, you know, still laugh at his jokes or try to be like, Oh, Pepe, you know, cause it was funny for the sake of like, Oh my God, how could you say that? But then it was also funny because it's just, it's just goofy. It's just funny. You know, it's, it's part of, part of his world. I mean, getting very specific, he was never like, he was never racist in the sense that like he would, he wouldn't make like hateful jokes, but he would definitely make racist jokes from a, from a place of like, isn't that hilarious? You know, it seems innocent to me, but I could see how maybe, Somebody listening who didn't grow up with that wouldn't understand, you know? Uh, I mean, you, you, you're, descri- you're, you're describing what you're describing the effects of social, of social manipulation, like the fact that, and, and how you know, um, how you know that a problem is a social manipulated problem is there's no solution to it. <laughs> like, like you're, uh, the, 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 the way of the world right now is, is that people have been conditioned and they've been conditioned this way because of culture. Like it's a not like it, it's, it's like, it's a self-feeding system, um, where they're, they're, you know, just as you're saying, like they're topics, which like even 20 years ago, you, things that could be talked about 20 years ago can't be talked about nowadays or joked about. And you know, the, the further back you go, what was maybe normal conversation is like more and more egregious right now to a modern contemporary mind. And that's totally like, you know, it's, 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 it's a, um, it's a manipulated fact of, of what had been, has been done to consciousness and like this is again where like consciousness becomes reality like what you think in your mind you're like well I can't talk about these things you're a conscientious and, and thoughtful human being Mark and you're like I don't want to offend people it's like like it, like it's easier for me to just avoid a topic than than because I I, I just don't even want to deal with it I feel the same way like there's well, a lot and, of things on it and it, it and would so that, it would be different if it wasn't online too because like if I offend somebody in person. I can, I can say I'm sorry and I can like, you know, immediately probably change the situation with humor and be like, Oh my gosh, exactly. what, what am I saying? I mean, exactly. Like, the, like, and that's another thing. Like this is like an artificial sort of situation. Like when else are you going to have a conversation between two people that is then recorded and then we allow like how many uh, people like eavesdrop into it, AKA download, but it's like a, it's an agreed upon contract, which maybe like 200 years ago would have been considered uh, like insane. You'd be like, imagine having like a private conversation with your friend and then you're going to let everyone hear what you're going to say. Like, what are you going to say? <laughs> right. Well, like, but, but the, our culture has created this. 
Mm. Like partially because of technology, there's a medium that's created this. This is then, this is affecting, like we can begin to see like how ideas and all these sort of things are like affecting reality. But where, where was I going with, I went to go someplace with the, uh, um, with that point I was making before with, with the shaping of, of, of culture and, and the joking, the joking of your grandfather and, um, how and things how, are more sensitive now and how in the electronic medium it's like you know it, it it's captured and people can react to it in a way that's not oh, oh, natural this, this, so so okay so then so that being true so that's just a truth that's a description of the time we're in right now like that's the way it is so then we can use that to go and look a little bit deeper so your grandfather his way of his comedy from where he grew up and the time he, he grew up um, was like observational. Like, you know, this was a time and place where a lot of different cultures all of a sudden were living next to each other in close proximity. And like, it is very human to like, um, to notice the differences of other humans and like to compare uh, from a various degree of or various continuum of like, um, of how that culture and those people are different. You know, like I'm basically like in a very scientific way trying to describe like why people would like be stereo, would use stereotypes or be prejudiced. Mm. Well, yeah. And, and, and well, it also finish, was, let me finish where I'm going to go with this. So, but that's very different than being hateful and hurtful. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes you can be stereotypical and prejudiced and be hateful or like being mean spirited or like hateful spirited. Like, uh, and then there's a lot, but there does not necessarily mean because of the way things used to be that there is a, um, an implied like hatefulness to it. And that's what you're describing about your grandfather is you're like, you know, he may have done this way, but that are communicated in a certain way, which is, which is uh, obsolete in the contemporary culture, but like he wasn't a mean spirited or hateful person. He was just like, that's what they did then. Well, and there's also the, the like impression now, like, Oh, well, someone who makes those types of jokes is like punching down when really it was a two way street. Cause he was, he was also someone who was like a, a strange person. Like he's everybody called him Frenchy, right? He grew up, speaking French he he you know had uh, a town that he grew up in where it was only French and then you know some English people so there was you know some English but he had to learn most of the English when he moved here and then yeah it's just sort of like that's the way it went like you were I, he's Frenchy the other guy was such and such this guy was you know <laughs> who knows what we won't repeat that but Frenchy's tame enough to repeat so I'll, I'll say that <laughs> but yeah I, I totally get what you're saying so we'll go full circle so let's so bring this back to rites of passage what you're describing is once upon a time like people were like thicker skin mm. didn't bother right they could laugh at it they didn't take it too seriously Right, and they were all, you know, working like, in the same what, factory that's, that's, anyway, that's, so they're equals. So, so that's one of, like, uh, this when culture was tougher, you know, in a way, which would be a cultural right, or like a general rite of passage, but just rites of passages, what they do is they prepare you. They prepare you for, like, for adversity in life. You know, that's what I talked about with the courage before. And so when the less, the, the less potent, and the, the less frequent and the less structured the rites of passage, then the weaker, the weaker the population. 
until you have a population where no one can talk about anything because everyone's feeling cancer. Like that's a natural, a natural conclusion of a culture without rights of passage. That's how you control culture. Take away those rights of passage. That's one of the ways. Mm. Like what we like this whole this whole episode. Like I, I'm thinking about all the things we've talked about from the beginning of this conversation, and I'm like we've covered a lot of interesting, uh, seemingly disparaged uh, topics. But what if I were to go and, and and categorize like where this show really ended up or this episode really up ended up is it's like talking about the mechanics of like social control. Hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And comedy is a, like a what, breaking the fourth really? wall to that in a lot of ways. Or the other way around. So what, what I, the, the, there's only one part of comedy that breaks that fourth wall, what you're talking about. Mm. And that's jester. That's the court jester. That's the, that's the, um, the Lenny Bruce's, that's the George Carlin's, that's the Richard Pryor's, the right. like one a generation Bill person Hicks. who, Who's able? Well, Bill Hicks didn't exist. He only existed in that he was a documentary created on the internet to then give justification. <laughs> oh, okay. right. But I'm being silly about that. But, but like, but <laughs> I'm going to say the comedy industry is more about controlling. Uh, the mainstream comedy industry is more about social control, but within the mainstream comedy industry, you will have those court gestures who do just what you're saying. Mm. But that I would say is not the norm. The norm is the fucking Bob Saget. The dark comic. Or, or just like, you know, Bob Saget on, on, ho on home America's home, funniest home videos, like, you know, doing really like uh, silly one liners. Cheesy. Yeah, exactly. Like, like nothing, like nothing, which is going to be thought provoking. Right. Right. Like the pop, pop comedy. Yeah. Pop com comedy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, shoot, Mike, we talked a lot about Indianapolis last week or, or last time we spoke. Is it, has there been any, uh, updates in that realm since any uh, thoughts on um, stuff in the the real world that events and whatnot oh uh, you flip the script will be very fast so let me go <laughs> see if i can catch up to you um so the most interesting thing i would say is um so uh the show which i record with the emily moyer uh project kids uh we're we making we're making it a point for every week to talk more about indianapolis I forgot what we were talked about this week. Um, as we build up to like the, the, uh, the, the, the trip to Indianapolis, but I did want to say that it is still growing and, uh, I don't have anything specific right this moment that I can think of off the top of my head, but it has not gone away. Okay. That's the best I got for you, Mark. What about Mark, I gave I gave you an hour of completely <laughs> off the head, off the top of my head complete analysis of all of all of these like what I think are interesting yeah. insightful deep and then you're like well what do you got for me about Indianapolis what do you got for me on that well I see the the mistake there and I have to apologize no mistake I'm just busting your balls buddy. no no you're right you're right I'm just I'm just excited to to get back out 
in the real world and, and do a uh, get-together and whatnot. All right, so this is what I got for you, all right? Because I, I missed the last one. So I, I, I've, got, I've got something for you for, the, for, the, for something which I think is going to be interesting. And so normally I talk about this offline with you, but we're going to talk about it on the show. Um, so I've got a friend, and uh, she lives in Canada. And, um, I think she's good. I want to have her on as our, as one of our third guests. And she's particularly interested in what on talking about, um, and her area of interest is, uh, new England landscape and landscape energy. And as it relates to synchronicity, that's her interest. Yes. <laughs> Wait, what part of Canada is she living in? Um, Ontario. Okay, that makes sense. A lot of them go to Maine for uh, for holidays. So I'm not certain why, but I know that the reason why she, the reason why New England is of interest for her, I can't recall. I don't want to speak. Is because a large series of synchronicities keeps bringing New England up. Huh. And so it's kind of a mystery. And I know one person who's very interested in the New England landscape and synchronicity. So I think it would be a fascinating show. Two people. You know two people. Who's the second? Tara. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you are absolutely correct. I know two people. I know two people. Well, I think that's... Is she uh, on the show tonight? Is she listening? She's listening. Yeah, she doesn't have a mic in front of her, but she's listening. All right. Will you will you extend my greetings? She says hi. Mike says hi, Tara. Well, she, you heard her. You you heard him. You, <laughs> you, you heard me say there's only one, and you're like, no, there's two, brother. <laughs> oh, it's all right. Yeah. So I said to you, I was like. <laughs> I said to you, I was like, listen, there's no mistake. You don't have to apologize. And now I'm going to be like, listen, I made a mistake. There really were two people. Oh. And I don't, I don't like to, I don't like. Thanks for that. I, you just cut out. I wish you didn't cut out there, but I didn't hear what you just said. But I literally said I did not mean to cut Tara out. Oh, well, that cut out. Well, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's no, the nature. That's, that's what I've been experiencing, uh, that level of, of, of strangeness mm. lately, of like literally the words I say happen like that. I say cut out, and then it literally cut out. <laughs> well, yeah, and then not to mention um, your friend who, yeah, let's schedule that. We got to right. we we'll do that. We're going to do that next week, all right? Yeah, good timing too. I just got Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces books one and two, so that kind of focuses on uh, New England. Um, but anyways, all right, Mike. Yeah, this has been fun. Good talk. All right, brother. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Likewise. Yeah. Have a good night. You do the same. I didn't know.